Welcome to the FBH podcast. For more information about our church, feel free to visit www.fbhamford.org. My name is Peter. I'm the uh, senior pastor here at FBH, and we're kind of trucking along in a series uh, called Silence through the book of Habakkuk. And so if you have a physical copy of a Bible, you can flip it open to Habakkuk 2, Digital Works 2, if you got your phone or you got a tablet or whatever it is that you want to do. We're going to be in chapter 2 this week. Um, and uh, this week in particular, it's really going to benefit you to be able to have your Bible open in front of you because we're going to keep referring back to the scripture over and over and over again. So you're going to kind of want to want to lean in. And I just want to let you know this. So last week we covered five verses of Habakkuk, right? This week we're tripling that. We're going through 15 verses. And this week is going to feel a little bit more heady than kind of where we normally get to. Today is largely going to be a history lesson. And we're going to talk about kind of what Habakkuk and God are having a conversation about that. So we're going to spend some time in the classroom. And then at the end we're going to get get right into, uh, into church. Does that sound okay? Yeah? So just kind of bear, bear with me. There may be some moments where you're like, ah. uh, but uh, just as you're, uh, you're getting there, Habakkuk 2, I do want to make you aware of uh, one of the greatest injustices that the sports world has ever seen. Uh, back in, in 2010, there was a pitcher that was on the precipice of pitching a perfect game. Any baseball fans in here know perfect? Yeah, a couple of you baseball fans. This isn't even a giant story, so you're welcome, okay? This is actually a Detroit Tigers story, and I don't think there's any fans of Detroit Tigers in here, and if there are, I'm sorry. But um, there have only been 24 perfect games in the 154-year history of professional baseball. 24. It's actually one of the rarest feats in all of professional sports, not just baseball, but professional sports in general. And so uh, the odds of throwing a perfect game, if you don't know what a perfect game is, it's 27 outs in a row, no walks, no hit batsmen, no errors. 27 guys come up to the plate, 27 guys get, uh, get retired. So the odds of that is actually 0.00098%. Or one perfect game every five years. And you think to yourself, okay, one every five years, that's not, that's not that rare. But if you start doing the math, you got 30 teams. Every team plays 162 games. So you do five times 30 times 162, which means one game out of ever 24,300 games then would be a perfect game. That means that you and I have a greater probability of getting struck by lightning twice than a professional pitcher has at throwing a perfect game. Super rare, right? Super rare just does not happen. So again, back in 2010, there's a baseball game. Everybody's on the edge of their seats, and there's a pitcher by the name of Armando Galarraga on the mound, pitcher for the Detroit Tigers, having the game of his life, retired 26 batters in a row, one out away from history, from being the 25th perfect game uh, ever thrown. And so Galarraga, he's, just, he's on the precipice, right? And the guy who represents the 27th out, he comes walking up, walking up to the plate, and he hits a ground ball to the first baseman. 
And so everybody in the stadium, they're all in their stands. And in baseball, like you're not allowed to talk about whether or not something is happening because then you supposedly jinx it or whatever. So no one's talking about the fact that there's a perfect game going on, but everybody knows there's a perfect game going on, right? So everybody's standing, they're cheering. Ball gets hit to the first baseman. Uh, Galarraga, the pitcher, he runs over towards first base. The first baseman does a nice little shovel toss to the pitcher. The pitcher steps on first base a, a full step before the runner steps on first base and the stadium just explodes. Everybody's cheering. People are, you know, the teammates are celebrating, like jumping up and down. Everybody except a guy by the name of Jim Joyce. Now, Jim Joyce will forever go down in infamy as the umpire that had the worst call in the history of baseball. Everybody in the stadium knew, without even looking at a replay, that this guy was safe. And Jim Joyce, the first base umpire, the guy responsible for making the call, calls him safe. Now, again, this is back in 2010. There's no instant replay. There's nothing like that. So you can't be like, no, I want to I go back and review that play. And it was funny because Galarraga, the pitcher, he wasn't even like, he was more depressed than angry, right? No one came out and threw up their hands, started yelling, get tossed out of the game or anything like that. Everybody was just sad, like just straight straight depressed. And so this umpire, he blew the call on the last out of the game. And so Galarraga, he handled it really, really well. Didn't argue, like I said. He accepted the decision, grace and dignity. And so actually the next game, before every game, the, the managers come out and they exchange lineup cards with the umpires. They shake each other's hands, kind of a formality and that sort of thing. And so the next game, Jim Joyce, the umpire who made that call was going to be behind home plate. So they sent Galarraga out to, uh, to hand him the lineup. And Jim Joyce, he had obviously seen it and saw that he had been vilified on social media. It's like, hey, stay away from Twitter, bro. You know, all of those things. And he is just literally crying because he knew there was nothing he could do. But, but the, the largest injustice, arguably, in the history of sports went down because of, of Jim Joyce. Like I said, everybody who saw that play would have said he went out. And that's obviously an injustice that Tiger fans care deeply about. But, but in the world in which we find ourselves today, there's tons of different injustices that we walk through. Now hear me, I wanted to start out light with a baseball analogy because injustice is heavy, right? Anytime that we deal with some sort of injustice, that means that a human life is largely being implicated in that injustice, whether on the side of righteousness or the side of, of, uh, of unrighteousness, somebody's life is largely being affected. And so there's tons of injustices that we have to sort through. There's people in our world, you may be one of them, maybe you're dealing with poor living conditions or, or maybe you feel like government's taken too much of what you've earned and that's an injustice or poor educational opportunities. Your boss gave somebody else a promotion uh, even though they didn't deserve it because of the fact that the boss like, likes that person, not necessarily because their work is better, right? The list goes on and on depending on your definition of injustice. But what we do know, and what we're going to pull from Habakkuk chapter 2, is that whether in this life or the next, that God is going to handle these injustices because at the end of the day, God is on the throne and we are not. That's largely what Habakkuk 2 points to. And so the big idea of this morning message is simple, is since God is on the throne, nobody gets away with anything. And I know that's a weird way to say it, but nobody gets away with anything. And so this should be especially encouraging to those who are actually facing injustice in this life and nobody is an advocate for them. Or maybe you're just sitting there thinking to yourself, I've done everything that I can possibly do and I can do nothing else. God, you are going to have to step in on my behalf. 
And make no mistake, God is watching. And in his time, God will step in. But beyond that, just like that comforting side of thing that God is going to take care of everything and all that stuff, it also should be a warning to each of us. Like when we sin, there is no way to escape consequences, right? Like as a church, we, we're in this four-week study in a book of Habakkuk. And so as we, as we push into this morning's text, we need to remember that every single biblical text is set in context. So I want to refresh your understanding of what's going on in Habakkuk right now, and then we'll push in to the text. So Habakkuk was written around 600 BC and Habakkuk is a prophet in the southern the uh, the southern southern kingdom of Judah. There's Israel and then there's Judah and Habakkuk is in Judah. And so while the Israelites were all supposed to be God's people, all these people were supposed to honor God. Um, people who were supposed to walk with him, people who were supposed to honor him, worship him, all that stuff. At this time they looked nothing like God's people. They were failures as far as honoring God with their life. Went And so there's, there's this reign under the, 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 the king. There's a wicked king named Manasseh. And then there's another king named King Ammon. And there's a king named Nebuchadnezzar who largely is responsible for the growth of Babylon. But the people of Judah, they left God's temple completely and totally abandoned. They had a temple. They had a place of worship. And they're like, you know what? We're not actually going to go there anymore. We're going to worship some other gods. So the other gods they chose to worship, they were Canaanite gods. Baals is largely what they were referred to. Baals were fertility gods of the time. And so they said, you know, we're going to go worship these fertility gods. Well, I'll let you figure out how it is that people would worship fertility gods. And that's largely what it involved. But they were also worshiping a god by the name of Molech. This god always comes up anytime that, that society is having a cultural debate regarding abortion and whether or not abortion is okay or not. And largely this, this god Molech gets thrown in because the only way that you can worship the god Molech is by burning your children alive. And so the, the, the people of Judah are participating in these types of worship, the sexual immorality, the killing of their kids. And as I said, they drifted a long way away from God. And so as you might expect, even the justice system is messed up, right? These unrighteous people are taking advantage of righteous people. Quarreling is going on throughout society. Like this is a terrible time in Judah's history. And Habakkuk at that point, he cries out to God and he's like, God, why are you tolerating this? Why are you tolerating your people not honoring you, not worshiping you, not loving you and doing what it is they're supposed to do? God, you need to do something about this is largely what Habakkuk is saying. And he's hoping, Habakkuk is hoping that God is going to send revival, right? That's his goal. That Habakkuk at the time would be like, oh, you, or, or God would be like, you know what? Yes, you're right. They don't love me. I'm going to send my spirit and there's going to be a revival in Judah. Something that we would all hope for. But God actually has, has other plans. He has a different answer to his people's sin. And so God's plan is to send this other group. This group called the Babylonians, wicked, terrible people in to judge the people of Judah at that point. To make sure the people of Judah understood that God's wrath, God's wrath is going to happen when injustice is occurring. And not just conquer them, not just judge them, but also take them into captivity. And so like I said, people of Judah, they're far from God. But the Babylonians, the Babylonians, they were even Worse, The people that God was going to use to judge Judah were a hundred times worse. How could God send them to conquer his people? Actually, in the ancient world, the Babylonians are legendary for their brutality. Terrible, terrible people. When Babylonians took people captive, uh, they actually put a ring through their lower lips. 
And most people were like, oh, cool, fashion statement, right? Not fashion statement. They put a ring through their lower lips, and then they would tie a string to it, and that's how they pulled people around. Ever had a fish on a line? Babylonians are doing the same thing to anybody that, that they conquer, right? Legendary for their brutality. And so this largely brings us to where we're going to start this morning, starting in verse 6, where it says, Will not all of them taunt him with ridicule and scorn? saying, woe to him who piles up stolen goods and makes himself wealthy by extortion. How long must this go on? What do we need to know when it looks like the wicked are winning and God is doing nothing? Like, what do we need to know, what do we need to know about those who appear to get away with murder and no one can stop them? That's the theme of this passage. In this section, God actually inspires Habakkuk to write a song and he writes a song with five specific truths in it about the way that God works in this world and the way he handles those people who do evil. And these five truths actually describe how God was going to handle the wickedness of the Babylonians. But this truth also shows us how God handles wickedness even today. Again, we can pull truth from context and apply it to our lives, specifically if we're talking about God's character or God's function, right? So the way that God feels about injustice was the same then as it is today. So these five things are going to be called scoffs. They're going to be called taunts. These are different statements that are intended to mock the Babylonians and their victory. In other words, Habakkuk is essentially saying, like, you think you're winning, Babylonians? Like, you think you're destroying? Let me tell you how God is going to handle your sin. Nobody gets away with anything. God is on his throne. Justice is going to be served. And so each of these five truths that Habakkuk is about to lay out, they all start with the word woe. So if you have your Bible open, you can kind of scan through every two or three verses, and it starts with woe, woe, woe. Okay? Actually, the Hebrew, the Hebrew word for woe is aha, aha. It's kind of more of what it means. It's not the word. That's more of what it, what it means. It means aha. Like you think you're winning. You think you're getting away with murder. Aha. Let me, let me tell you what you need to know in the way that God is going to work his justice out in this world. So these five woes, they actually teach us that nobody gets away with anything. Right? Let's, let's read this text and look for the word woe, which begins each of these truths. And we're going to start back in verse 6 again where it says, Will not all of them taunt him with ridicule and scorn, saying, Woe to him who piles up stolen goods and makes himself wealthy by extortion. How long must this go on? Will not your creditors suddenly arise? Will they not wake up and make you tremble? Then you will become their prey because you have plundered many nations. The peoples who are left will plunder you for you've shed human blood. You've destroyed lands and cities and everyone in them. Okay, let me give you a little bit more context. Remember when this was written. Okay, this is actually written before Babylon conquers Judah. So this is, this is a prophetic taunt. This is a taunt that's spoken prophetically about the end of the Babylonian empire. But at this time, Babylon hadn't even invaded Judah yet. But Habakkuk is like, hey, woe to you, Babylon, for what it is that you're about to do. And even though you're about to do it, eventually God is going to take care of this. And so God, we have to remember, God is the one who declares the way history is going to unfold. This is no different here. And actually, honestly, what amazes me is actually the accuracy with which these taunts describe the Babylonian sin and the way God was going to respond to it. 
Okay, like I said, Nebuchadnezzar, he's like king of Babylon, right? He's the guy who, who built Babylon up and all that stuff, like that cultural peak. And Babylon, he, Babylon had conquered the ancient world, conquered them. And the primary source of their riches, they didn't like find gold and diamonds in a cave and were like, oh, we're going to sell these to other people, imports, exports. That's how we're going to get ahead. They had no goods. They had no services. All they did was go into other people's areas and loot and pillage their things and take them home for their plunder. Babylonians are essentially pirates, right, except they're not burying something underground. They're going to pile up all of this money, all of this wealth, all of this stuff, and once they have it piled up, they're going to go do it again and again and again and again. They took everything of value from the people that, that they conquered specifically to impoverish them and make themselves even more wealthy. The other thing this text describes is how they loaded themselves up with pledges. What are pledges? Pledges is another name for taxes, okay? You think your tax rate is bad? I actually did a little bit of research, uh, and I learned from the years 560 to 530 BC, we know the Babylonians charged a 50% tax on all conquered kingdoms straight across the board, 50%. You're like, we're in California, we're almost there. Not quite. 50, 50%. And so the purpose of these taxes was to keep conquering more kingdoms, if we can keep having income, we can keep these people at bay because they're too poor to be able to afford anything, and we can use their money to go conquer more kingdoms, right? The Babylonians, they didn't need more money. They already had enough. They did this because they were bullies who simply wanted to oppress the world. The problem was, though, nobody could stop them. Nobody could stop them. Nobody could just simply stand up to them and be like, can you do anything? No, I can't. Can you do anything? No, I can't. do. Guess we're going to keep paying a 50% tax rate. At least that's the way it appeared. And that's oftentimes the way it appears in our lives. Like, I can't do anything about this. I'm broken. Things have spiraled. And I've tried everything that I could possibly try in order to get ahead, in order to take care of these issues in my life. And I can do nothing about it. And then Habakkuk reminds them, who is on the throne? Who is watching and who is judging? Who says nobody gets away with anything? God. God declares that he's going to deal with the oppressive Babylonians. And suddenly they're debtors. They're, these debtors are going to rise up and they're going to make them tremble is what the verse says. That all the nations around the world who, who got plundered by the Babylonians within rise up and plunder them. God is on their throne. Nobody will get away with anyone, anything. God will see, that, see to it that there is a reversal where the greedy is conquered in an instant and will experience what they've done to others. So again, this is a prophetic word. This hasn't gone down yet. Habakkuk is talking about what's going to go down in Babylon after they judge Judah. So then the question becomes, oh, interesting, has that happened? Did that happen? And when, if it did, did it happen? Did this take place? Yep. But we need to know ancient Babylon was the largest city in the ancient world. 2,500 acres. Massive, especially for that time. The book of Daniel actually tells us what Nebuchadnezzar felt about Babylon. He, he, he built it through conquering and built it through oppressing other people. If you're interested in any of this, like, history stuff, read the book of Daniel. That's Babylon. That's what's what's happening. But it looked like Nebuchadnezzar and, and Babylon, that they would last forever. It looked like Babylon held the world in its grasp and that Babylon was never ever going to be destroyed. And so God actually said he would destroy Babylon and he would destroy it suddenly. So the Babylonian kingdom 
as we're talking about these empires, all these different places, you're like, oh, man, that probably lasted for a long time. 100 years. 100 years is all it lasted. So in the year 539 B.C., Babylon is surrounded by Cyrus and specifically this army of Persia. Cyrus is the king of Persia. And so Cyrus's army walked into Babylon in the middle of the night. When the Babylonian army realized that the city was invaded, it simply like gave up. And in an instant, the world's strongest, mightiest kingdom was conquered and plundered just like God said it was going to be through the prophet Habakkuk. God says, you think you're going to get away with stealing from the weak? You think you're going to use your power to oppress people and take stuff you don't even need and nobody can stop you? God's on the throne. God is going to take care of that. And he's patient. And he even gives us the opportunity to repent of these same things. That so often, like this idea of like dishonest gain and all the, like, like God will see to it that justice is served. And for ancient Babylon, that is absolutely true. That happens, but it's still true the way God works today. Nobody gets away with anything. Justice will be served, not just in eternity, but oftentimes in this life too. And so even if you're sitting here thinking to yourself, like the tables are never going to be turned. I'm always going to be the oppressed. The oppressed. Or maybe you're on the other side and you're like, I'm always going to be the oppressor. And I'm kind of proud of that. God can turn those tables and turn them instantly, just like he did for the Babylonians. The second woe, and we'll speed up now. The second woe is that God is actually going to destroy the future of everyone who tries to leave a legacy based on sin, the foundation of their sin. It goes back to verses 9 through 11. This is what it says. It says, woe to him who builds his house by unjust gain, setting his nest on high to escape the clutches of ruin. You've plotted the ruin of many people, shaming your own house and forfeiting your life. This is my favorite part. The stones of the wall will cry out and the beams of the woodwork will echo it. This section, this woe right here, it deals with the idea of, of legacy. The Babylonians, very interested in leaving a lasting legacy of how great they were, right? Incredible people. And as a reminder, the only kingdom that is going to last forever is the kingdom of God, not a kingdom set up by man trying to make his legacy last forever. It's never going to happen, right? You think about some of the greatest empires that ever walked the face of the earth, the British Empire even, the Mongol Empire, Spanish Empire, all these different things. Some of them are even still around, right? Most people wouldn't call, uh, wouldn't call England an empire anymore, a shell of a former self, still a good country. It is not where it used to be. Spain, same thing. Mongols, they're gone, Right? But all of these empires that at one point had, had just like, like this massive influence all around the world have been smashed to be a shell of who they are. Why? Because God's kingdom is the only kingdom that's going to last in the end. But if you are trying to make your legacy last forever, forever by building on sin and by building on dishonest gain, I got a company credit card so I can just buy something that is kind of for the company, but actually I want it. Or I can just take a little bit of money here. It's just a cash box. Nobody's going to notice the five bucks that are missing or, or whatever, whatever it may be. That's dishonest gain. And God is indeed watching. He's eventually going to carry out justice and shut down your plans. Here, here's the principle. God fights against the wicked and he destroys their legacy. That's largely what's being said here in verses 9 through 11. That's the way God's work. God is in charge. 
Here's the irony, though, and the interesting part. that Those who are pressing people to build houses and build kingdoms for their own glory to leave this, this lasting legacy are ultimately going to find they, their stuff that they stole crying out against them. That's why verse 11, when it talks about, like, stones and even the woodwork is crying out, Okay? That's what it's talking about. It's like those stones weren't your stones. This woodwork isn't your woodwork. Like even those things know that what you did was wrong. Those things are even going to cry out against you, that we are stolen goods. We don't belong here. Why? God is on the throne. He will destroy those who try to make a legacy for themselves through that idea of wickedness. Everything they've built for themselves is not going to last. And the same is true for us. Every one of us would like to leave some kind of, of stamp of permanence in life. The only way to do that is by walking with God and letting his kingdom be your legacy. You think those disciples that walked along with Jesus were like, man, I really want to build my legacy. I want to be remembered 2,000 years from now. <laughs> no, we're a bunch of fishermen. Why would anybody remember a bunch of fishermen 2,000 years later? Why? Because they were dedicated to building God's kingdom in the second half of their lives. That's what they dedicated their lives to. But we do this all the time. All right, how much money can I pile into savings? How much can I have for retirement? All the while turning our back on the idea of generosity so our name can be known. And I'm not saying to be a poor steward with your money. I'm not saying clean out your retirement and give 100% of what you have to the poor and then you're, you're living on beans and rice and that sort of thing. That's not what I'm saying. Yeah, what I'm saying is if all you want to do is build and build and build wealth and legacy and stuff and have the most toys and all of these different things that play into it and you aren't concerned about God's kingdom, you're only concerned about your own kingdom, God's going to take care of that. Why? Because nobody gets away with anything. We need to put ourselves to bed and take up our cross to help build the kingdom of God, which the church is indeed called to do. Because we are God's plan A for the world. But Habakkuk keeps going. Verse 12. It says, Woe to him who builds a city with bloodshed and establishes a town by injustice. Has not the Lord Almighty determined that, that the people's labor is only fuel for the fire? That the nations exhaust themselves for nothing? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So his third woe is that God is going to destroy all nations built on this idea of slavery and injustice. That God's hammer is going to come, going to come down. The city of Babylon was one of the wonders of the ancient world. Some of you, some of you history nerds have probably heard about the idea of uh, the, the, the hanging gardens of Babylon. A apparently absolutely, absolutely beautiful. Masterpiece, right? Gardening masterpiece. The problem is the entire city was built on the backs of injustice specifically of conquered people and slaves like the Jews. No matter how impressed the city, God wasn't impressed by it because of the way it was built. It was a city built on sin and a city built on suffering. And so God promised, hey, all this stuff, everything is going to go up in smoke. All the hard work that was done would actually be for nothing because God in his justice is going to crush the city. And that's what happened to ancient Babylon so Babylon, again, largest city in the ancient world, had a population of more than 200,000 people, which at the time would have been massive. And it was, that's after it was conquered by Cyrus. And so after that, it, it declined and ultimately completely and totally disappeared. God doesn't just care what we do. God isn't just interested in the ends. 
God isn't just interested in whether or not you get that job or not. He's not interested in whether or not you're just, you're, you, like you, you are present with your kids or not. He's interested in how it is that you do those things. He's interested in how it is that you got that job. He's interested in how it is that you receive that money. He's interested in how it is that you're raising your kids. God cares about, doesn't just care about the end. God cares about the means. And this is very clear as we're talking through this here. He cares how we do and how we build something, not, that just, not just that we build. God is on his throne. No one gets away with anything. And so the next woe then is to those who shame people and abuse God's creation are actually going to experience God's wrath. It starts in verse 15. It says, woe to him who gives drink to his neighbors. This is going to f- feel really weird, this section. I forgot to preface you with this because you're going to read this section and be like, That seems strange. I'll explain it in just a second. Woe to him who gives drink to his neighbors, pouring it from the wineskin till they're drunk so he can gaze on their naked bodies, right? All of you are like, I'm good. Can we go to the next one? Let me, let, me, let me explain. You'll be filled with shame instead of glory. Now it is your turn. Drink and let your nakedness be exposed. The cup from the Lord's right hand is coming around to you, and disgrace will cover your glory. The violence you have done to Lebanon will overwhelm you, and your destruction of animals will terrify you, for you have shed human blood. You have destroyed lands and cities and everyone in them. Okay. So we need to understand that at this point, Habakkuk is talking to one very specific individual. Habakkuk is talking to King Nebuchadnezzar, most likely. Okay, this isn't like a widespread thing that everybody was like, I'm going to try to get my neighbor drunk and see him naked. Okay, that isn't an issue that's largely going on. This is an issue with Nebuchadnezzar, specifically the king of Babylon. Okay? Also, it's referring to anyone who's going to act this way that he did here. But one of the things that we need to know is that the king of Babylon is making, making his subjects drink and get drunk in his presence. And he does this very, very, he does this for a reason. He would actually get them so drunk that they would get naked, as it says. The king is using his power to get people drunk so he could actually fill them with shame. The Hebrew wording here on on what is going down, it's a little more graphic. It's more than just getting them drunk so they were naked. It was actually getting people drunk to have them commit sexual immorality. That was Nebuchadnezzar's goal. That's what he wanted to see have happen, right? People are thinking clearly. They're sober, things that they would never do. If you can get them drunk, you can get them to, to do all these sort of ridiculous things for your amusement, and that's what Nebuchadnezzar is doing. They end up waking up in bed with people that they never met. And Nebuchadnezzar made them do that so they would shame themselves. And he would know about it and then he could lord it over them. That was Nebuchadnezzar's goal. And so God actually said the king of Babylon was responsible for abusing his people in this way. As the leader of the world, like Nebuchadnezzar, he should have been serving people, not using them for his amusement. Historically, even, the Babylonians are actually known for these wild, crazy parties where tons of alcohol was always served. Again, found in the book of Daniel. And there's this drinking party that actually takes place under a different king, Belshazzar, on the night that Babylon is conquered. So everybody's drunk. And then King Cyrus and the Persian army, they walk in, everybody's drunk, they're doing things they shouldn't be doing, instantly conquer Babylon. Why? Because of their sin and because of largely what's going on. The promise of God is that empires who use and degrade their people will ultimately be judged and destroyed by him. And it may seem like God isn't watching, 
Like you just, you may assume God isn't watching what happens on earth, but he is watching and nobody gets away with anything. The same is true of every single nation on this world. God is watching how people are treated and God is eventually gonna step in and judge the nations who shame people. God is on his throne. Well, number five, last one, verse 18. It says, of what value is an idol carved by a craftsman? Or an image that teaches lies. For the one who makes it trusts in his own creation. He makes idols that cannot speak. Woe to him who says to wood, come to life. Or to lifeless stone, wake up. Can it give guidance? It's covered with gold and silver. There's no breath in it. The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. Read verse 20 again. The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. Babylon was a nation filled with idols, a nation filled with idols. The chief god of Babylon was actually a guy by the name of Marduk. And they thought that, that he was the one in power. He was the one who gave them victory. And so his temple was massive, a temple built to Marduk. It, it, like it pierced the skyline of the, sh- the city to be able to show his, his, his prominence and his power. And God said, think about this. Do you think, do you think that Marduk or any of the idols in Babylon contributed to your success? Hey, Babylonians, you really think it was this wood and this stone that you covered up with pieces of gold and silver? You think that's largely what contributed to it? Your idols, they're made by craftsmen. They're just carved metal images. That's it. And so largely this is what God is saying. The actual universe, the actual God of the universe is different than what was created at the hands of craftsmen. He talks. He talks to Habakkuk in this book. He knows the future. He controls the future as we see here. He raised Babylon up and then he's going to choose when to put Babylon down. Remember all these specific woes that describe Babylon's sin and how she'd be destroyed were all given before God or God by God before Babylon came to conquer Judah. So obviously God is in charge of world history since he's the one who specified both the beginning and the end of the Babylonian reign in the world. Our God is the one who holds the reins of history. And we forget this. And this is hard for us sometimes to be able to let go of that knowledge and let go of that control. There's no one who can challenge this. There's no one who can challenge God's authority. And we sit in our own thoughts and we sit in our own heads assuming that God doesn't care or we assume that God isn't listening. And it may seem like God is distant and things are just simply spiraling out of control in the world. But that is not the case. God is always in complete control. Even when we can't grasp the wisdom behind his actions, because our understanding is limited by our own minds. Our understanding is, is limited by our own, our, yeah, our own thoughts, but we get to take comfort in knowing that justice is ultimately going to prevail. Psalms talks about this all the time, that God hates injustice, and God will deal, deal, will deal with it in this life or the next. Actually, in the beginning of this book, Habakkuk had a bunch of questions and a bunch of complaints, wondering why God didn't seem to intervene in the face of injustice and in the face of of wickedness around him. But later he came to realize that God was actually at work. Even though he didn't understand it, even though God's ways weren't Habakkuk's ways, he, he eventually chose to trust God in God's 
God's wisdom. So instead of constantly questioning God or accusing God for, for what seems to be lacking, we can simply stand in awe and trust his plan even if we can't fully comprehend what's going on. Everything that happens in the world and in our lives is part of God's good and purposeful plan for history. Even when we, even when we can't grasp its meaning, any, even in times of turmoil, nothing occurs outside of God's will and his purpose. Right? We're, we're called to live by faith knowing that God's glory is going to prevail in the end. It's not about us having all the answers, but rather about placing our quiet confidence in God even when things seem chaotic, and this is our issue. I think if you have acknowledged Jesus is Lord of your life and you like accept the inerrancy of Scripture and accept what the Bible says and all that stuff, we don't have a head problem understanding that God is sovereign. We don't have a head problem understanding that God is on his throne. That's not the issue for us. It's the heart problem of us just simply getting out of the way and saying, okay, I know God is sovereign. I know God is in control. And even when my life just seems like it's spiraling and I can't do anything about it, I've done my best. My finances are a mess. My marriage is a mess. My kids are a mess. My job is a mess, whatever it may be. And I've tried my hardest to handle it. Maybe it's a medical diagnosis. And I've tried my hardest. At some point, we just have to release control and say, God, I've done everything I can. I'm leaving this in your hands. I'm going to trust in the fact that you're on the throne, that you're God and that I'm not. And sometimes it's injustices and sometimes it's just things that you simply can't control. Right? We, we talked about this a little bit last week and I'll kind, of, I'll kind of end with this. But we talked about this idea that, that God being on his throne largely just reminded me of him sending, sending Jesus. This idea of trusting faith amidst the world's chaos, right? And, and here's these Jews in the intertestamental period, the 400 plus years between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament, who were just like, God, where are you at? You said that a Savior was coming. Where are you? And then all of a sudden, God shows up, or, or God's son shows up in the world, born, born in a barn. Everybody thought he was coming with like a sword dipped in blood, like it talks about in Revelation, and he's going to overthrow the government and all these things are going to happen. We've got Jesus who's born in a barn, grows up largely under the tutelage of his dad who's a carpenter, stepdad who's a, who's a carpenter, right? And then all of a sudden Jesus comes onto the scene and he's 30 and he starts preaching and he starts healing and he starts doing all these stuff and the disciples are around him and they're like, man, this is it. This is the guy. He's going to overthrow the government. The Jews are finally going to be back on top, baby. Let's go. And everybody's excited about it. And then as you start walking up towards Good Friday, we even did it this year as we, as we trudged through the book of Mark, and it just seemed like week after week after week, it got darker, it got more difficult. And all of a sudden we see, we see Jesus get betrayed, and then we see Jesus get arrested, and then we see him get beaten, and then we see him get crucified, and then we see him killed. And at that point, forces of darkness thought that they had won. At that point, can you imagine the disciples who had just dedicated the last three years of their life to this guy who said, I am, I, like, I am God. I am the Savior of the world. Everybody's going to del be delivered through me. And they just saw that guy who pledged that to him for three years die on a cross. Chaos. Nobody understood what was going on. It even looked like that God had lost control. But no, what nobody could see at that moment was God was still on the throne. 
And it was God's grand plan. He was entirely in charge, working out his purposes, even when they seemed unfathomable to our own human minds. Through Jesus' death, God defeated Satan, he defeated sin, and he defeated death. And it was the gateway to our adoption as God's beloved children through Jesus. Amen? So when life feels like everything is just falling apart, and everything feels like it's just spinning out of control, let's remember that God is still on his throne. His plan is a good plan. And we can trust in him and patiently wait for his timing, no matter how formidable the challenge may be. Rest assured that justice is going to be served. Sometimes we witness it in this life, but we can be certain that in the grand scheme of things, God is going to make all things right. It's the last thing. I know many of you know that... uh, you know, one of our sons is getting some MRIs and that sort of thing. And largely we've been in like a, a waiting period, not knowing what's going to go on. And so in a couple of weeks he has, his, he has his next MRI and I can do nothing. I can literally do nothing except just wait and pray and recognize that at the end of the day, I don't know what God's plan is, but it's better than my plan. And I have to simply sit and trust in the fact that God is on his throne and I am not. And I trust him, not just with the issues in my life. I trust him with some of the things that I hold most dearly, which is my kids. And that's a difficult, difficult thing for us to be able to grasp. But as someone who acknowledges Jesus as Lord of of my life, that's where I have to go to. Not just this idea of being manic and trying to white knuckle and control everything. Why? Because God's in control at the end of the day. Amen? Let's pray, church. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for Habakkuk. And God, this is, this is hard. This idea of just knowing, knowing that you have everything under control, knowing that you're the author of history, knowing that, that there is nothing that you haven't blessed that, that, that comes to pass. And so, God, when it comes to the idea of us being amid turmoil or us not understanding what's going on in our lives or anything like that, when those things happen, it just seems difficult because we're like, God, we know you have a plan. Work it out in the way that I want to see you work it out. But, God, clearly that's not the path forward always. It's actually rarely the path forward. And so, God, I pray our thoughts would be your thoughts. I pray your spirit would give us clarity to be able to understand what it is that you have for us. And that when we don't understand it, when we don't see it, when we don't hear it, that we would simply just be at peace with that, knowing that regardless of the injustice, that you're on the throne. So, Father, with heads still bowed and eyes still closed, if there's someone here today maybe who just needs, needs to acknowledge God, needs to acknowledge Jesus as Lord of their life, and they're like, you know what, there is turmoil and I want the peace and the assurance of knowing that, that, that God is sovereign and he has everything under control. If that's you this morning, you can simply pray along with me. We call them the ABCs. Simply say, Father, A, I admit that I'm a sinner in need of a savior, that I have fallen short of your glory, that I sin daily, and I'm in desperate need of somebody to intervene on my behalf. And B, I believe that that is your son Jesus who did that. Who went, was beaten, suffered, nailed to a cross, died and ultimately conquered death for me to be able to be with you 
forever and see that I would choose to follow you every single day of my life, which includes resting and acknowledging that nothing happens apart from you, Father. We love you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.